This message is brought to you by Cornerstone Gospel Church in Frankston, Australia. We're looking at substantial healing of psychological problems and um, uh, oftentimes we, we in Christian realms we get scared of a word such as uh, psychological because it's been so abused by the you know, psychological professionals uh, who've come up with, with many and various different theories, Freudianism and Jungianism and uh, all kinds of things that, that are out there. Uh, they have many different theories, but we're talking about what the Bible speaks about regarding human psychology, the way a person thinks uh, about things. And you know if you've been a Christian for any length of time that you came into the Christian life uh, with some baggage, sometimes we might term it in the modern vernacular, and some of that baggage was less than desirable. And so uh, that baggage has led to, on many occasions, some, uh, you know, some um, uh, errors within the within our behaviour and thinking. So let's turn to our text. Sorry, I had to get out of that because I've made a couple of changes in the presentation. We'll just read from Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3, 16-19. To, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain you shall bring forth your children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We praise you, Lord God, uh, for how you have inspired scripture through those of old. Lord God, that they would record these words for us and that we would understand man's creation. Uh, that we would understand man's deliberate choices against you and mankind's entry into sin. Lord, that we would also understand our volitional uh, continuation of that sin, Lord. And, and so we praise you for this. Lord, help us to see how, that, uh, how, how man's psychology his whole being has been affected through the fall, Lord, and help us to humbly yield ourselves to you that we might grow and that we might each day be stronger in our walk with you and each day glorify you more to the praise and the glory of your Son, Jesus, our Messiah. Lord, let the work of the Holy Spirit be evident in our lives, that the fruit of the Spirit be manifest as he takes that word, Lord, and, and makes it afresh and anew in our hearts. In Christ's mighty name. Amen. Hallelujah. 
I'll skip that back down to uh, to here. This is a, a real brief summary of last week. That's why I have it in a little different colour. We talked about the two big questions. I'm not going to go over these in detail. Uh, the question of existence, and no matter who a person is, uh, no matter what his philosophy is, he exists. And so then the number one problem that man has is is that explanation of being, of why he exists. Why does man exist? Why does anything exist? I'm not talking about purpose in that. I'm just talking about the raw facts of existence. Why does stuff exist? And so uh, the second question is that of purpose, that because I exist, I'm here, so what am I uh, as, a, as a consequence of existence? What am I here uh, for? What's my purpose? And so what we learned as we went through last week is that existence is given meaning because of a personal creator, the God of the Bible. And if you take the personal creator out of it, existence is at best given a mystical meaning or at worst is given no meaning at all. In fact, uh, to understand existence, man needs two things. He needs an infinite reference point. Now, by that we don't mean a reference point that is infinitely far off, but we mean a reference point that has this quality of infiniteness, right? No such word in the dictionary, I don't believe, but, um, uh, but don't worry about that. Um, and not only does this reference point have this quality of infiniteness, and so we talk of God as being omnipotent, omniscient, om, uh, omnipresent, etc., etc. These are uh, descriptions of that characteristic of God. But also, uh, this infinite reference point must be personal. And by that, we don't mean your personal reference point, but we mean has the characteristics and qualities of personhood. And so, uh, we talk about God, the scripture talks about God as being personal in that God has attributes of thinking and of communication and of loving and hating uh, and of jealousy over his people, etc., etc. All of these are characteristics of personhood, thereby making God personal by, uh, by fact. We also talked about how Christianity provides answers for both of these questions. The question of existence, why is anything here? And the question of purpose, what am I here for? And that the non-Christian cannot know anything outside of his existence. Now by that we don't mean can the non-Christian answer questions about mathematics you know, these kinds of things, you know. But the non-Christian is not able to answer the questions of rational morality, for example. Why is it wrong to kill? If we take evolution at a purely logical basis, there is no reason for that. There's no reason to say that it's wrong to kill. But if we come back to scripture, we know that not only has God commanded that you shall not kill, 
And by that, the word in the Hebrew is murder, and it, it, it applies to people killing people. Um, I've had a lengthy discussion with a vegan uh, one time. So, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Um, a, a rabid vegan, I'll, I'll differentiate. Um, our brother and sister who've been visiting the last couple of weeks are vegans for health reasons. So the, this is not an anti-vegan church, please, believe me. But I... I had a lengthy discussion with a vegan one time who tried to um, uh, convince me that thou shalt not kill applied to animals as well, which would be a struggle with Peter's vision. You know, Peter, rise and kill. And, um, and so uh, that would be a little bit of a, an issue with that. So the, the word in the Hebrew applies to murder. And the reason for that is because it derives out of issues of the heart, And that's what Jesus would come to later. He would talk about issues of the heart, this hatred and envy and things like that, which drive people to committing that kind of act. So, now, the Christian position states two things. It states that God exists and that you have been created in God's image, therefore you exist as a result of God's existence. This is the Christian uh, 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 position in essence. And so the purpose of existence, therefore, or existence rather, is given purpose. And that is that you and I exist that we might commune with God, who is our infinite personal reference point, not infinite distance-wise, remember, but that God has characteristics of infiniteness and that he has characteristics of personhood. And one of those is that we can commune with God. Remember, in the garden, in the cool of the evening, the Lord would walk with Adam and Eve. You can't get much closer communion than that. And so the purpose of existence is that we would commune with this infinite personal reference point who is actually there, the God who exists, God himself. So this is what separates Christianity from the mystical religions. Now, therefore, we have to ask ourselves as a person, what am I? And it's in answering these questions we get to the answers of life's life's mysteries. And this kind of Thinking is very important for you in order to be able to uh, take people through evangelism and and various things like that because you can answer these questions for yourself. You can, along the way, put these questions in a person's heart so that they have to go away and think about it. What, What is the reason for rationality and morality? Why do they even exist? These kinds of questions. Why are you here? All this kind of stuff. So uh, we must ask what am I? And the answer to that, have you, have you asked yourself, what am I? The, you know, the answer to that is essentially that you are rational and that you are moral. Even if your moral code is bent way out of shape, you are still moral. Okay? So um, uh, an example would be People, there are there are lobby groups lobbying for for children, young children, to be able to engage in uh, relationships 
I want to keep this simple because there are young children here, uh, intimate relationships with adults. And they see this as being okay. And so um, when you when you begin to talk with them, you will say to them, at what age? And they'll be vague and they will say things like, well, you know, under 18 will be okay, you know. And then you say, well, what age? What about 16? Well, I think that people are very mature at, at 16. I think they could pr- probably be younger than that, 14. And so as soon as they give you an age, they've exposed to you that they have a moral code, actually. They've got a moral code. It sits there. And so matter, no matter whether they say 14 or they say 10, there is a moral code existing. And so the question is, why that level? Why are they thinking that number is okay, you know, and and it's driven by this moral code. So even if their moral code is bent out of shape, it still exists. And this is why there are people who are, uh, are marrying child brides in, in Syria and in the Yemen and various places like that because their moral code permits it because their great prophet permitted it. Are we going to get in trouble? Not with the Lord. And this is all about a moral code that is driven by a philosophy of understanding that sits in the background to them. And so when you speak with an atheist, he has a moral code. It sits in the background and it guides his worldview. And that's what, that's what the Christian theology comes in confrontation with all the time. When you go to Eastern mystical religions, they're very embracing of all religions. Um, You know, they see Jesus as just another God. For example, in Hinduism, 300 million uh, gods within India, you can declare anything as a God, make it and pray to it and declare it as a God. And so they will embrace everything as being a God. And so when you say, no, Jesus is exclusive, uh, you're going up against a mindset there. It's a paradigm of psychological thinking. And so uh, this is what you're battling with and it's guided by the worldview that people have. So let's move on from there. Okay, so on the one hand, we're talking about rationality. Man tends to rely on mysticism for real answers in this area and this is even uh, within the realm of scientific man. The, the problem of unity of creation and existence, the problem of the purpose of man. Man will reason, why does existence have to be seen that way? Why can't we see it this way? And the reality is that, that people who are saying that kind of thing are simply arguing their perspective based on the worldview that they have. And so, uh, uh, it's a sim- you know, for example, the evolutionist will say, it's simple. Everything that exists is a product of random chance. It's just happened, you know. And so um, I've told you many times before, in, in the simplicity of my childhood, I just really struggled with that idea because I just thought that the beauty of creation um, and I didn't call it that then, I was just out in nature, but I thought that it demanded that there must be more than just an accident. And um, 
that there must be a God. I didn't know who that God was. And the first time I began to hear about God was as a teenager in science class at school. And, uh, and one of the uh, Christian kids at school asked the teacher if, if he could bring a creationist perspective into the debate. And, and you know, thankfully, uh, my science teacher, Brownie as we called him, uh, he allowed him to do that. And that was my first introduction into this idea about creation. And it just made sense to me because that giant leap... Uh, of faith called evolution didn't make sense to me at all. So as a non-Christian who had no idea who Jesus was, that very first time I still didn't know who Jesus was. He was just talking about creation and how that explains everything that exists. And so that made great sense to me. So for the evolutionists though, existence is just a chance encounter. Why are you here? It's random chance. Why do you have a moral code? The evolutionist cannot answer that at all. His best is to say it's a social construct. Everything about you and I denies this random chance. Everything about us. From fingerprints uh, to fingernails to... The lubrication between your bones. Uh, Phil knows a thing or two about that. He's, he's had to have a few of them replaced. You know, uh, all these things, right down to the far more complex things that man still can't unlock. The 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 patterns of uh, uh, you know the neurology of the brain. The how the electrical signals move around the brain. How the brain uh, is able to be largely healed when it's faced a trauma and all these kinds of things. All of this stuff is very much mysterious to man uh, and it has to be put down to uh, random chance. God has caused us, he's put within us this trigger that you and I would question this existence. And so the problem is, is that we come into this age now we walk around with our heads in the phone. We've got headphones on all the time. We put that down to turn on the box. We turn that off to go onto the computer and surf the internet. And constantly there is a stream of information that is belting towards us all the time. And some of that information is great. Don't get me wrong. Every little project I'm going to do, whether it's building a veggie box or or whatever it might be, every little thing I do, I get on YouTube, how to build a, how to do a, I have a look and there's always someone who's got some great video on there. I'm not talking about that. But there's this constant input of information and what that does is stops you from thinking. It stops you from thinking. You have this information that is always coming in, audibly, visually, it's always coming in, and that prevents you from taking time out to think. Scripture encourages us that we would not just read, so it's not about 10 or 20 chapters a day or, you know, any such thing, but that we would meditate on it. And the purpose would be then that you and I take in a portion of Scripture, whether it's a chapter or whether it's a book. 
Some people can concentrate across a whole book of the Bible and read that in one city and meditate on it because of their great grasp and, and comprehension. Others of us have to come down to a verse and maybe even a phrase within a verse and meditate on that. Study it out and think about it. Let it ruminate is the word. Let it be within us in that way. Now, the modern existence is more and more geared at denying that. And so God wants us to question our existence because this invariably causes us to look at creation around us. It invariably says to us, how did this get here? And then it causes us, when we question existence, to look within and say, why do I have this conscience? Why do I have this moral code? I grew up in a non-Christian family, the moral code there was somewhat different to the moral code I've grown uh, into as a believer. But as a non-Christian, I knew it was wrong to lie, steal and kill. I knew these things were wrong. I lied and stole a lot. I stole off my own mother, something she wouldn't let me forget for many years, her collection of round 50 cent pieces. Um, Stole them and spent them as 50 cent pieces. The trouble was they were, bought, they were worth about four bucks each at the time. So I just spent them as 50 cent pieces and lied about it as well. Said they were stolen. That was, that was true. It didn't say who by. That's the problem. Someone else stole them. So uh, I lied. Lied and stole. And my conscience was goading me that whole time. All the way through. It was there goading me. But lying gets easier as you lie to yourself about these things. And especially if you go down the Nietzschean paths and and stuff like that where where he was obsessed with this idea of atheistic approach to things and saying that that moral code should be gone. So when man refuses to bow to God using science and rationality as his excuse, he ends up with these giant jumps in the dark. He's just making a leap into the dark. He's saying, oh no, we're just here by accident. And it's just a leap in the dark. Man's own rational nature is contradicted by his irrational reasonings of existence. Man's rational nature is contradicted by his irrational reasonings of existence. The fact that you and I can rationalize love and we can say, you know, that love is is a glue within a marriage and within a family, for example, that it does something special. Well, why if we're just a, a, a happenstance of random chance? Why is that the case? Why aren't we looking at it purely in this evolutionary sense and just saying we don't need love? This was a big problem for Freud, actually, and he he was atheistic uh, in his position. Uh, He was an immoral man, and and, uh, he had a a mistress whom he treated rather poorly. But uh, one time he wrote to her in this, you know, in this state that he was in, and he said to her, when you come to me, love me irrationally. And so his point was that love was actually irrational. And so when you come to me, please do that irrational thing. 
you know, and just love me irrationally. So, you know, this is, this is crazy stuff. So, our rationality demands answers, and they're answers about the cohesion of nature. Why is nature the way it is? Why does it work the way it is? It works, why do, why do we procreate, promote the creation, etc., etc., etc.? So there's this constant tearing within. And the point is that man's rational nature reveals this dichotomy, this split and this contradiction. So man is separated within himself. When man takes that atheistic evolutionary approach, there is a separation. He has to live a duplicit life. In order for him to love others and have that moral code, he has to live a life that denies his evolutionary atheistic stance. That is a basic fundamental. You don't need a moral code if you're an atheist because you have no root for it at all in any form of logic. So, the second area is that of morality, and we find the same thing. Man cannot escape the fact of the workings of true, right, and wrong within himself without the Creator. These are two areas that man is hugely affected. Man is unable to establish and keep his own relative standards of morality. Isn't that true? You know, um, man says, you shall not commit adultery. Yeah, yeah, adultery is wrong. And then you have a look at the divorce rates because of adultery. And you find that people who believe adultery is wrong are often committing adultery. That's not even to mention the standard of adultery that Jesus established. So in the area of morality, man is crushed by his own philosophy. He was made to be in relationship with God, but in denying that, he is crushed by who he himself is, that he even exists as a a product of random chance. Now let's think of it another way. Personality is shown by that which thinks, acts, and feels. All right? Now, some people will say, what about dogs? Dogs are incredibly affectionate, and they can be, but there is a limit to that. Dogs um, can react to humans' human emotions. That is true, but they're they're not able to interpret them correctly and and they have trouble dialoguing with you about it, you know. You know, dog doesn't sidle up to you and and say, hey, partner, what's wrong today? And you might might think that he sounds a little bit like that sometimes, you know, Scooby-Doo and all that kind of thing. But man can express his will. Now, I'm using this in the general understanding of the word will. This does not mean man can will things into existence, right? But he can express his will. If I have a desire about something, I can express that. That is an expression of will. Uh, Writing and speaking, uh, emotions, etc., can all be an expression of will. But he cannot put his will into an infinite action. Man cannot create out of nothing. I cannot have unlimited actions in the smallest things of life, let alone the largest. So therefore, 
despite all my demands for freedom, and man is screaming for freedom, aren't they? You know, they want to live. This is the, the hippie revolution of the 60s and 70s was all about individual freedom. And we have done the hugest disservice to the generations that followed that. It was all about that individual freedom of expression, the sexual revolution, all these kinds of things. And, you know, today that has gone insane. But man is unable to put his will into infinite action. Therefore, man does not have infinite freedom. We don't have that infinite freedom. I mean, if, if the people of this world all expressed that infinite freedom to the degree they could, this world would instantly be chaos. Instantly chaos. So therefore, man is not the God of his own existence. He just cannot be because of the constraints of his creation. God has made him this way. And this is why it's really good. It is really good to have downtime from things like this, to have downtime from things like that, to have downtime from TV, YouTube, Facebook, etc. It's very good. And to deliberately take a verse and just ponder it, take a philosophical question and ponder that question. So there are separations within man because of his revolt against God. So in rebellion, which man is in in rebellion, he's not staying within the sphere of function and influence that he's supposed to be in life, his sphere of existence. And this is shown to us right there in the book of Genesis uh, where where the, the enemy says to Eve, God knows that you shall be like gods. And so, in order to become the ruler of her own existence, she and to express her freedom, she stepped outside the boundaries of restriction that God put her within to express her own will in that situation. And then her husband with her. So man falls at every turn because of his desire to step outside the restrictions that God has put him within. Even our marriage act until these recent changes said that marriage is identified as being one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. Our marriage act said these things. In fact, uh, before all this Changes took place. I had considered getting my marriage license, which I uh, uh, stopped pursuing at that time because I saw these changes coming and and just thought that the whole involvement of the state in marriage is wrong anyway, blah, 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 blah. Another story. Um, But in the study of that, I learned that it was necessary as a celebrant, you, you actually were required by law to say those words at that time. You had to say that marriage was... Uh, the the union of one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. You had to say that as a celebrant as part of the ceremony. I don't know what that will have changed to now. So, and the question will be, is that whatever it's changed to, the question is why? If it's the now the union of two people, why why two? Why not three? Why not a half a dozen? What what's 
Why? Because man and animal, and the people are pursuing that. Why not these kinds of things? You know, there was an insane British woman who went to France and, and had a marriage ceremony to the Eiffel Tower. Anyway, it's, it's just insane. The world's gone insane. Why? Because it has stepped outside the boundary of restriction God has put us within. This is why in salvation we experience substantial healing in the psychological, over psychological problems. One reason is because we understand God exists, we understand God has created us with purpose, and we begin walking in life within that purpose that God has put us within, whether it's in marriage or as children or in employment or in Christian service, which is all of those areas anyway, we begin to walk within the restrictions that God has put us in, and that is true freedom. That's where true freedom is found. So, man can return to his place before the personal creator. Hallelujah. A personal creature, humble before a personal creator. That's what we must return to. You see, in, in evolutionary circles, man elevates himself. But in scripture, man humbles himself. Man says, you're the creator. I'm the created. Man can turn to a lower standing in the creation. Well, this is a second choice. Here are two choices. We can turn to our place before the personal creator and humble ourselves, or we can be debased. That's what I mean in the second point. You see, if we don't humble ourselves before God, God will debase us. That's what he does. As we rebel against God, God brings us lower and lower all the time. These are horrific thoughts. We've read through Romans chapter 1 and we've seen that at work. So in this choice... Man thinks he's going higher, he thinks he's elevating himself, elevating his personhood, but he must either repent or rebel. It's one or the other. And repenting is where, when a man humbles himself, that God lifts him up and exalts that person above the, uh, uh, the status that he has individually before. That God lifts him up out of the miry clay, elevates him to sonship. Man thinks he's going higher with his elevated reasoning. I tell you, you look into the um, rise of psychology out of the Enlightenment and see some of the crazy stuff that people thought, that'll do your head in. Then you'll need psychology. So uh, some of the crazy things that that people thought out of those, uh, those movements... So man is divided against himself. He desires to break the shackles of religious imprisonment. This is how it's brought across. And I mean, you you only have to get involved in evangelizing for a few minutes and you will see people talk to you like this way, that you're bound by religion you know, they, they make assumptions. You, you've been born into Christianity, all these kinds of things. And there are a lot of paradigms that, that work 
within the mind of the unsaved. And if you, for a moment, take yourself back to thinking what you were like before you were saved, you'll remember that those paradigms were there for you as well, that you thought that way. And God, by the miracle of the gospel, rescued your soul. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So through the gospel message, he's rescued you. He's sparked faith within you through that message. The further man turns to his own reasoning, the greater degrees of separation in every part of his nature. And this is borne out right across the community. Uh, You see the fall and then you see within a short period of time, if you're reading the scripture, you see that, uh, that Cain kills Abel and then you see laws starting to be put into place and you know what started as a law in the garden becomes 10 laws becomes 619 social laws and we get to a situation where in Australia we have in excess of a million laws ruling our country today even the rules about taxation number in the hundreds of thousands the laws and so we become more bound by these things let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 Because as we read this curse that has been placed by God upon man, it's obvious that a large section of the curse has fallen upon man in such a way that man now experiences this division from himself. Genesis chapter 3. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception in pain you shall bring forth your children. So there is a change within her body and her psychology and or her psychology. Some have said this isn't just physical pain, but it goes on to the emotional, psychological pain of child rearing. Your desire shall be for your husband. Now, this is strange wording for us um, here because, you know, the blokes would say, oh, that's a good thing. Didn't Didn't she desire him before? You know, I'd love to be desired by my wife. You know, um, come on, come on, guys. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Or why has your face fallen? Or what's with the sad face? Right? Suki. Come on, sukilalo, you know. So, um, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Now, these two sentences here, your desire is for your husband, he shall rule over you, are the same in the Hebrew except for the pronouns. They're the same in here. Sin's desire is for you. And you should rule over it. Now, if you rule over sin, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Good thing. Okay. So, then in Genesis chapter 3, when God says to Eve, your husband should rule over you, is that a good thing or a bad thing? We can let scripture interpret scripture. He's not talking about a domineering over her. He's talking about a loving leadership and that he should have this over you. Sin's desire is for you. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Bad thing. 
So your desire for your husband, in this sense, is it a good thing or a bad thing? So he's not talking about a, a desire as in, oh, darling, you're the most wonderful thing in my life. He's talking about her wanting to have control over him in an unbiblical manner. But he should lovingly rule over you. And so we're just letting Scripture interpret Scripture. You're just going on a few verses and you see that, that God speaks to Cain and he says to him, listen, Cain, sin has a desire for you, but you should rule over it. Right? So this is part of the curse. There is now a separation that, or a change that has taken place in this relationship of Adam and Eve. Now, where they were created equal but with distinction, right? There is an equality, but there are distinctions between male and female, both physically, psychologically, and functionally, right? We have differences, and if you don't think that's true, Biology 101 will answer that for you, right? In fact, kindergarten biology can answer that for you. Um, without getting to biology 101, you can answer that for you. Just think back to your childhood with your siblings and, and you'll remember things you don't want to remember um, You know, when you're playing around uh, doing crazy things. It answers that for you. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. There's a change out of the fall. right? Things are not the same. And so... Out of that, you and I, we're walking in our own way of rebellion. We're going with that. When we come to Christ, we have to come within the circle of influence that he's intended for us to live within. Marriages are to function within that. Then to Adam he said, because you've heeded the voice of your wife. That's, that's a rebuke there. He's rebuking him. Does that mean a wife has no wise counsel in a marriage? I mean, come on. Let's not go down that stupid male-dominated way of thinking that invaded American Christianity in the 40s and 50s. Let's look at it biblically. There is communion between husband and wife. and There's discussion between husband and wife. There are decisions that can be made between husbands, husband and wife where they take wisdom from each other. Because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you. That is the particular heeding that he did. You have heeded her to behave sinfully, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. Here's a change. Here's a separation. Now, a, a change within Adam's world as it was before he you know we could walk around plucking the fruit from the trees and eating the product of the ground and all this kind of stuff and not have to worry about capeweed and thistle and thorn and you know and worry whether we've poisoned ourselves with bagon or uh, or some other you know uh, catastrophic product of the Vietnam War you know all, all these things we don't have to worry about that whether some big pharmaceutical slash chemical industry is killing me because I sprayed my weeds. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. This tells us he did not have to toil before. Mm. Oh. oh. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't that be good? Won't that be good? Hallelujah. I've done, I grew, grew up working on farms, I can tell you. It is toil. 
It is toil. I'll take you to a farm, you can pick carrots all day. I'll tell you, that's fun. Pick onions, pick broccoli. I'll tell you, it's fun. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. For you. I love how those words are inserted there. It's going to bring these forth for you. Why is that? Because this will be a reminder of where sin takes us. And so you and I today, we can actually be digging and and getting these things out and we can thank God that he has shown grace towards us. These things are a wonderful reminder of his grace. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for dust, you are unto dust, you shall return. You and I are separated from our true psychology, separated in relationships, separated from where, what God intended us to be physically, immortal, sinless and immortal. There's a difference between us now. Now we experience every pain and the ramifications of sin and, and how we've abused ourselves, separated even from the ground that we till to get healthy food out of. There are changes We're divided and one of the big areas is right in here. There are changes that have happened here. And if you think back to before you were a Christian, you know there's been dramatic change. But even as a Christian, you've probably thought some insane things. You've probably thought some very unbiblical things. You've probably had thoughts of hatred and anger towards people that are entirely unbiblical. Because God is in the process of transforming us from one point to another. And praise God, he'll complete that when we're with him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So we are very divided within ourselves. So we can summarize this so far. Since the fall, there's no truly healthy person in body. Since the fall, there's no completely balanced person psychologically. Doesn't matter how amazing you think you are. You're not quite there yet. If you were there yet, you wouldn't be here now. So the result of the fall spoils us as a unit in all our parts. You know, spoiled not as in spoiled child, spoiled as in ruined. It's corrupted. It's corrupted us. The fall has corrupted us. Just, you only have to think about the most simple things. Oh, you got out of the wrong side of the bed this morning, didn't you? What does that imply? Someone knows you've got a bad attitude. Why is that? Because we've been corrupted. We're not there yet. We're not perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. Hallelujah. Modern psychology generally teaches from a worldview influenced by evolutionary theory. All right. Um, This is right across the media and it's common in the nature shows and Um, as people try to explain human behavior as a carryover of evolutionary thinking. And I'm telling you, you you can Google um, these kinds of things. There are evolutionists who have explained rape as being a part of natural um, desire to, to keep the species alive, right? Keep the... That's completely logical, actually, if you subscribe to evolutionary theory. Because animals do that. And so that's what they say. It's just come down from our animal origins. 
And so, you know, one day I'm driving along in the car, listening to, uh, in the car rather, listening to 3AW, and uh, they had this biologist on there, and he started explaining that homosexuality is normal because male giraffes are involved in homosexual practices. So that was a, a revelation to me. And he said, yes, the male giraffes will frequently involve themselves in, in homosexual practices. And so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty stupid. I don't have a degree or any such thing. But I've seen this in the animal kingdom. I've seen dogs do this. And I've seen on nature shows giraffes do this. He's correct. They do do it. But it's nothing to do with sex. It's all to do with pack domination. Being the head of the herd is what that's about. And so it was, it was interesting when we took our dog, and he's a big boy, you know, 65 kilo, and, and, and he's a big unit, and we took him up to stay with Casey at Easter time, and he's remaining there because there's a bit more land and all this kind of stuff. Casey has a dog. That dog is about a third the weight and size of, of, uh, of Big Red. And so uh, Red spent quite a bit of time making sure that dog knew where he was in the pack, you know. And, uh, and he made sure that poor little Hundy uh, understood where he was in the pack. And it involved a little bit of this kind of activity and stuff until Hundy uh, would yield himself and stop trying to prove himself. And so... Uh, you know, it was, it was kind of funny. That's all it is. But you see, they want to explain away. So then why is rape immoral? If, if you're an evolutionist and you believe this is the extension of the species, why is it immoral? Well, in fact, there are some evolutionary theorists who believe it's not immoral. You see, this is the insanity. Why is that? Because they become separated from true biblical psychology into this realm of thinking this way, so they have to justify their actions and their thinking. We came across a lot of this stuff years ago when we used to do the radio program uh, at um, 3RPP, uh, and so we came across a lot of this information. So, man is unable to answer these kinds of things because his psychology is right outside the realm of influence that God intends. Modern worldviews prevent the treatment of the whole person as they don't deal with the issue of man's sin. The One of the most prominent behavioural practices these days is called CBT, Cognitive Behaviour Therapy. It concentrates on the behaviour. And so it says to people, when you're feeling this urge, you need to create a new behavior. And so you, you focus your mind on that new behavior or a new way of thinking, etc., etc., to divert it away from this. The Bible gives a fantastic cognitive brain therapy. It says that we should meditate on Scripture. And so, you know, we can turn to Scripture. So if you're feeling a temptation, run to Scripture. Meditate on it, ponder on it, pray. That would be a fantastic CBT for you. So the, the practice is not wrong in that sense, but it's wrong in that it doesn't deal with any root behaviour. Once you start meditating on scripture, it will deal with the root of your behaviour. So modern man has been damaged in both body and soul. 
psychological problems are real problems, just as physical problems are. This is important because guilt is actual and it's cruel. Guilt can be a very cruel thing. It leads people to many, many issues, including suicide, um, various different things. When someone is broken in these areas, they can become very confused, especially when their thinking is outside the realm of the infinite reference point of God, our personal creator. When they're outside of that, what hope do you have to deal with the guilt of life's actions when you're outside of Christ? So it becomes a very hopeless situation. It leads to a great deal of despair. And so... You can go back over some of the earlier lessons. Christianity does not overlook real guilt. We're wrapping up here. Christians or Christianity's rationality deals with real guilt. It's not overlooked. It's not a case of CBT. In Christianity, the gospel message right from the very start challenges you and I about real guilt. It points to our sin. It calls us to repent. Repent of what? If we don't have guilt, what are we repenting of? And so we have real guilt, and that's plaguing our conscience. So the gospel message confronts us with that, and it says, hey, stop in your tracks, sinner. Your problems are rooted in the sin in which you're living. Your rebellion against God. So it is dealt with in Christ's infinite substitutionary work at the cross. (coughs) Thus, real guilt is gone and psychological guilt can be dealt with. I've met many Christians who've come into the Christian life and right here and they have been saved but they are struggling with this real guilt and they're struggling, struggling with the psychological effects of the past and learning to Let things go in Christ. Or learning to make right that which they've done wrong. You see, coming to Christ should not cause us to want to escape all the wrong we may have done. We may, in fact, come to Christ and realise there are many things we need to repair. It can be difficult to distinguish true guilt from psychological guilt. This can be difficult. Sometimes... You know, a little bit like the um, the Labor Party's costings inquiry. Um, you know, you, you've got this iceberg that you can see only the top portion, and below that there's a lot, right? And so uh, it's a little bit like that, that you and I exist in that top portion of what we can see. But there's there's a lot more happening beneath. And all too often... We believers, evangelical Christians, act as though there's nothing to us other than what is on the surface. We all too often interact in that way and we interact with people in that way. Since the fall, though, we've been divided and I think it's good for us to see ourselves in this iceberg way. It's not possible to say at any given moment that we're perfect, free from all known sin. We, You and I are not... Perfect, we're dealing with things. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? 
We, we will have challenges with the heart and the way we think. We can't understand ourselves perfectly. Who can know it? Then Jeremiah says in the next verse, Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, try the reins. God knows your heart. He's the one who tests you. And part of that is that because he knows your heart, he's exposing it to you. He's the one in control and he's exposing that heart to you. This is why Hebrews declares the word of God to be living and powerful and sharp, that as, uh, sharper than any two-edged sword, that as it pierces in, it separates your thinking from that which is spiritual. We must learn to deal honestly with the issues we can see. Then the Holy Spirit will help us to deal with the deeper matters beneath the surface. Amen. I'm going to punch through this last one because this is the end. The infinite value of Christ's death at Calvary covers all our true guilt and finish. Why? Because he said what? It is finished. It's done. It's done. All guilt and all sin is dealt with in Jesus for the believer. Feelings of guilt may remain and a part of the miseries we experience this side of glory. Don't don't just push those away because God may actually be bringing them to the surface to bring about in you a humbling so that you can restore things where possible. Okay? Sometimes that's not easy. I've had those experiences in life. I had challenges with people that um, uh, you know, I didn't treat right before I was a Christian. And when I became a Christian, going back and, and redeeming those relationships as much as possible was not easy. But where possible, we should do that. The result from man's historic fall the life of the human race and personal actions. So life itself with the fall brings sinful people in confrontation with each other and as a result of that we there are all kinds of violations and problems that happen and we have these carryovers even into the Christian life. So finally, understanding this is vital. Remember, you're the work in progress. If we had the little graph here, we'd say you got saved here and you're travelling along and at some point you'll be in glory over here at the end. You know, so uh, And at that point, uh, you will be glorified and you're going to be changed. But understanding this is vital for freedom from the results of the bonds of sin and substantial healing in our deeply damaged psychology. All right? This is a huge issue, and if you're involved in evangelizing or counseling, this is a huge, huge issue. Today, we have a whole generation of young people who are being mentally destroyed by our education system. They're being destroyed in the future we're going to have to pick up the pieces for those kids. And one way will be through the gospel. The way, the one way, will be through the gospel. But those young people are going to require a lot of psychological help, true psychological help. And the gospel is what brings that to them. Amen? 
it's, it's unreal to see the damaging effect of safe schools in just a few years. It is unbelievable to see that. If we weren't seeing it, we wouldn't believe it. If we're just talking about it, we'd be saying it was George Orwell's 1984. And we'd just say, you know, wasn't that an interesting book? Imagine a society like that. Now we're living in it. It's here. And, and this is the hope for people, that there is real redemption, real psychological healing from true guilt, and a real transformation in the inner man where the deep questions of life are. Let's keep preaching that gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I wanted to get this finished, not drag it over into another week. So, Hallelujah. Father, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, we thank you already in our own lives that you have brought so much healing and restoration physically, mentally, spiritually. We thank you, Lord, that through the blood of Christ you you have redeemed us unto yourself to be your people. Help us, Lord, to invest ourselves in your word that we might be continually transformed by the power of your spirit as he takes those words and renews us in the inner man and teaches us not to think in those old ways, but to be transformed in the ongoing sense day by day as we walk with you. So we praise you and we thank you. We love you for all you've done for us in Jesus. And we love you, Lord, that we can be clothed and in our right minds and seated before you. In the mighty name of Jesus, our Messiah, we praise you. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you for listening to this message. You're welcome to duplicate this message in its entirety for non-profit purposes. For more information and resources, visit cgc.org.au.